Iowa everywhere. Hello, everybody. This is Sage Rosenfels. Thank you for listening to the Sage Rosenfels Experience on the Iowa Everywhere Network. Today's show is sponsored by Channel C. So thank you for sponsoring the show. I've got a great guest on today, Pat Forty, longtime college sports writer, college basketball, college football, the other college sports as well. He's been to many Olympics. Uh, he gave us some great insight today on the NIL, uh, how the conferences are aligning, of course, the Big 12, and of course, my Iowa State Cyclones and the Iowa Hawkeyes. Pat was great today. Have a listen. From the Channel Seed Studios, Channel Seed Studios. This, this is the Sage Rosenfels Experience, exclusively on Iowa Everywhere. Channel Seed, seedsmanship at work. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sage Rosenfels Experience on the Iowa Everywhere Network. Today, I have a special guest, Pat Forty from Sports Illustrated, is on to talk all things college sports and probably beyond. Uh, Pat, welcome to the show. Hey, Sage. Good to be on with you. Good to see you again. Last we sort of chatted, uh, I was at the NCAA Finals basketball game. Um, we were going to do a podcast right after that. I ended up getting sick, probably from just being around 72,000 people and traveling and all those things. It sounds like a lot of people uh, that I that I know sort of came down with a little something uh, after that Final Four. But talk to me about uh, how college basketball ended this year, obviously with UConn winning it, uh, and um, just sort of where the stage is in college basketball. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this season I thought – uh, was as chaotic and as jumbled and kind of undefined as any I've seen. And I've been I've covered every NCAA tournament since 1990, I guess. Um, and you saw it just throughout the year. Like nobody was number one for more than I think like four weeks, maybe six. And there were six different teams were number one. And uh, there were just no great teams. And I thought that played out until all of a sudden UConn became a great team. And maybe they were early, and then they kind of stumbled for a while, and then they got it together late. But I thought the tournament was representative of the season because you had total chaos, and it didn't look like anybody was any good. And then all of a sudden, at the end, there was one clear team. But for you know, when you get Florida Atlantic and San Diego State and Miami in the Final Four, you know it's been a pretty wild tournament. I had a chance to see UConn play early in the season. Uh, this year for Thanksgiving, I went out to Portland where my sister lives. I had no idea that there was a big basketball tournament going on. Uh, and for the listeners out there, going to Portland for Thanksgiving isn't great because the weather stinks that time of the year. But uh, Phil Knight puts on the Phil Knight Invitational. This is basically the Nike Classic is basically what it is. And they play at two arenas right next to each other, the Moda Center where the Trailblazers play and then the old arena in town. Um, and you get a ticket to the game. It doesn't matter where your ticket is because there's only about a thousand people at these games. Mm -hmm. And you can sit right down by the court. Um, and we got to see Iowa State play North Carolina uh, in, in the semifinals. And then we saw Iowa State play UConn in the finals. I sat on the floor. Phil Knight sat about 10 spots from me. Um, and I got to watch UConn play. And at the time, Iowa State was playing pretty dang good. They'd beat North Carolina uh, uh, just the night before. Um, and UConn came and it, it was it, – they had sort of stayed in that game. They won by about 15 and they had all the pieces. You saw it then. Sometimes you see a team early in the year and, and 
you don't know how the season's going to end up, but man, they had guards, they had uh, guys who could shoot, and they had big men. They sort of had all the aspects of a, of a good college basketball team, and of course, a Hurley coaching them. And it's sort of odd then to go as the year progresses, and they were hot early, one of the hottest teams early in college basketball. They sort of fell off a little bit in that Big East Conference. Uh, then, of course, it was almost no doubt going into that championship game or really almost the final four. They were, they were, they, they won all, all their NCAA tournament games by double digits. They were a dominant team talking about the biggies conference uh, and, and the advantages that they might have in the new uh, um, uh, situation with NIL and, and how college basketball is going forward. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, this is basically the, the the ten year anniversary of when the Big East absolutely just decided to swim upstream from the rest of college sports. When everyone decided it was all about football, every decision had to be based in football. The Big East said, "No, it's not who we are. We tried it. We tried to create this hodgepodge football conglomeration. We're a basketball league. We're going back to basketball." We're basically just breaking away from whoever was playing football in the league at that point in time. And we're going back to our roots and taking, you know, the the Georgetown, St. John's, Villanova, the Providence, the, the, the East Coast, Big East teams. And then we're going to go out and we're going to get um, some Midwest flavor. We're going to add DePaul. We're going to add Butler, Creighton, Xavier. And we're going to play basketball and we're going to pitch this as a basketball first thing. And it worked. Uh, it was a risk. It was counterintuitive to what everyone in college athletics was saying you should do. But it worked phenomenally. I mean, Villanova carried the league. Getting that, They got a contract with Fox, which really helped. Uh, and so that gave, them a, that gave them a platform. And then Villanova was a great program, won two championships, carried the league, got them to this vibrant place. They kept their foothold in New York City. They kept Madison Square Garden for the tournament. And then now UConn has, has risen up, won a third championship for them in the last seven, I believe. And uh, there's, you know, positioned UConn. When, when UConn's good, they're really good. And Villanova's going to be back and be better. And Marquette's good. And Creighton is good. And, you know, they just there's a lot going on for the Big East right now in a positive way. Yeah, Xavier Marquette was the best team in the conference for much of the season. Yeah, won the, uh, won the conference uh, regular season title. I think they won the, tie, the, the tournament title, too. So they're really well positioned. Now, their, their contract comes up again, I believe, in two years. And the question then, all right, is Fox still all in? Because now Fox is all in on football, too. So do they still have enough money and airspace and inclination to, to also still be all in with basketball in the Big East? From a competitive standpoint, do you feel like the Big East actually has advantages over almost all the other conferences because they're basketball only? So, you know, I live in Omaha here. We have Creighton. Um, of course, you have Providence. You've got UConn. They're not funneling money in the NIL world to football, right, which has 85 scholarship players and uh, uh, tons of, of resources have to go in that direction. Basketball, you get three studs on a team and then you find some role players. You've got a final four team. Uh, do you think the Big East in general almost has a competitive advantage because of the new NIL and the fact that they don't have football? 
Yeah, yeah, that was the second part of the question, which I didn't answer, but you're absolutely correct that that they can sell themselves as a basketball NIL destination, you know, and that, that there is mark there are markets for basketball players to make money as endorsers, uh, as whatever, uh, you know, autograph sales, sales, whatever. In 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 Omaha, as you know, Creighton has a very good following there. Uh, Marquette's huge in Milwaukee. Obviously, the other schools are, are have, you know, the Northeast is a basketball hotbed. They're, they're, they'll, they do very well there. So there's markets for players. And, yeah, you can say, you know, you, you can go to Alabama, but nobody really cares in Alabama about basketball. Or you can yeah. come here where everyone cares and there's a real market for you and you can make some pretty good money while you're playing college ball. I mean, right right now at Creighton, they get about 18000 for for every game. It's, it is like the NBA team. In, in Omaha and really Nebraska, people don't really care much about Nebraska basketball nearly as much as, as Creighton bas- basketball. They call them Jayskers uh, here uh, <laughs> because you're either you're a Creighton Blue Jay basketball fan and people try to be Nebraska Hus- or uh, Husker uh, football fans. Um, tell me about the Big 12. You know, I'm an Iowa State guy. I wear my Iowa State sweatshirt today. Uh, they, it's an interesting spot that the conference is, is in. Uh, what do you think of the new uh, commissioner? Uh, and where the Big 12 Conference is headed. Boy, they're a success story, too, because uh, they were on the ropes, you know, when Oklahoma and Texas, you know, announced that, well, it was was revealed that they were bailing out, and uh, it looked like the league may just fracture, split, or go away. And they have regrouped very impressively. Uh, I think the commissioner, Brett Yormark, is a really sharp guy who stepped in and provided – Direction, energy, confidence, uh, aggressiveness, new ideas, new approaches. Uh, you know, it doesn't come from the standard college sports realm, so he sees things a little bit differently, and I think that's that's beneficial at this point in time. Uh, and then the additions that they made even before Yormar got there, I think, you know, bringing in uh, BYU, UCF, Houston, Cincinnati were really good additions. They help in football. They help in basketball. Uh, they don't necessarily dominate their TV markets, but they're big markets. And when they're doing well, people will get on board and watch them and follow them. So, and I do, they, they help you from a recruiting standpoint. Um, it's another school in Texas, which is good. You're in, um, Florida, which is important. You're in Ohio, which is a great football state and BYU has a national following. So, I, I am impressed. I really thought the Big 12 was in big trouble, uh, but it has it's stuck, hung, hung, hung together and gotten better. Houston's an interesting school for me because when I was playing down there, 2006, 7, and 8, the University of Houston was this definitely like a second-level athletic school. They were trying to pump some money into it, and now it's become a, a legitimate Division One you know, for, whether it's football or for basketball, uh, I, I saw just yesterday the, the the city of Houston puts out more NFL players year after year that, that went to high school in Houston than any other city in the country. It is a major, major uh, sports town. Talking about the importance of Texas in general, uh, but also Houston's addition to the Big 12. Yeah, well, Texas, I mean, everybody wants to recruit there. Everybody needs to recruit there. Um, cause there's so many players. And so that's a destination. So you want to be playing games there regularly and you've got, 
obviously you got Baylor, you've got TCU, you've got Texas Tech, and now you got Houston. And as you said, Houston is is the hotbed, probably. I mean, DFW Metroplex also puts out a ton of guys, but Houston, there's even more of them. And so you really want to have that toehold there. Um, you know, if, if you're Iowa State, if you're Kansas, you're Kansas State, and you're saying, hey, you'll get to go play it at home, you know, every other year. And then, you know, your folks can come up here when they play Houston, that sort of thing. So Easy drive. Houston, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great uh, draw to have. And just, I think the, um, the, just the, the, the talent level that's, that's there and, and that's available and, and hopefully, you know, at first primacy, at least for, if you're a big 12 fan is that you want to stay in, you want to stay in that league or in that footprint. So uh, I think it's a, a, a very smart addition and you're right. Houston's come a long way. Uh, Tillman Fertitta, the billionaire down there, restaurateur and other stuff. And he's involved with, I think the Texas, I know the Rockets, but he's a big UH booster too. And he's helped, he helped rebuild their basketball arena and their basketball facilities now are very good. Um, so that, you know, there's no reason to think that, that Houston shouldn't be a major player uh, going forward. As you look at the college sports landscape and some people said NIL is going to destroy college athletics. One, it hasn't been destroyed, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. But two, how much has it really changed college athletics? Again, I think we're still very, very early and everyone's trying to figure it out and things are going to be different than they are in five years or 10 years than they are now. But it feels like to me this, the Blue Bloods are now just stealing players from the the schools that are sort of one step below that were good. You know, as here's an example, Iowa State basketball, we had a point guard he transfers to Texas, all right? So Texas isn't a real blue blood basketball school, but it's a blue blood, blood athletic department. But then Iowa State, we just go and we just sort of steal the best players from the level right below us, right? So at the end of the day, it just feels like everything sort of ends up being the same either way. Yeah. Do, do, you see it? do you see it like sort of that? And, but now also the players are actually you know making money? Yeah, I mean, I would, I'll say this. NIL has not ruined college athletics. I mean, it sure hasn't. The competitions are still very captivating. The audiences are certainly there. I mean, TV ratings are going nowhere but up. So uh, TV value is going nowhere but up. It, it, it has not been the ruination of all things sacred in college sports, you know. So yeah. now – is it perfect? No. Like you said, we're in the early stages of it. It's embryonic. We're still, everybody's still trying to figure it out, get their arms around it. I think the dust will settle and we'll probably be in a more solid, less chaotic space in a couple of years. Um, but I think it's great that players can, can get some of the, uh, the earnings here, you know, and be included in, in the profit making. I think they should have been. And, uh, the, the the issue, I guess, Sage, is, is NIL plus transfer portal uh, have just created this complete sense of free agency. And some of it folklore, some of it true about, well, I'm just going to pick up and go for the next highest bidder, even though you're not supposed to be bidding. You know, the, the NIL stuff is supposed to be, well, Sage, you're, you're a third-year quarterback, and so you've earned your, your reputation, so now let's go out and get you a Kia dealership spot, you know, advertisement or whatever. It's not what it is in a lot of places. You know, it's, it's hey, 
you're a freshman, here's $500,000, sign with us. So figuring that piece out still has to kind of be, um, first of all, it has to be enforced by the NCAA. Secondly, that people have to decide if that's really the way they want the rules to be. But it's, I think it's a net positive. I don't see any just, you know, huge negatives out there. It's just been hard for some people who are used to it being a certain way to kind of deal with the changes. Talking about the NCAA and where they are in, I guess, sort of trying to regulate, they're, they're in an interesting spot where they want to uh, have control, but they want no responsibility. It's like a narcissistic <laughs> view of being in charge of something because they don't want to be responsible for NAL and they don't want to get in the middle of all that. But they also want to put like some bumpers on the sides. Where's the NCAA and trying to figure out uh, how, you know, how this whole process is going to play out? Well, it's a great question because, you know, the, the genesis of the of the chaos here is the fact the NCAA and its member leaders were so resistant to giving the players anything other than a scholarship that they just dragged their feet and dragged their feet. And other people said, fine, we'll take charge, namely state legislatures. And California will have a rule that says players can get this and that. Florida will have a rule. Tennessee will have a rule. So and so and so and so. And then I was like, oh. And then the NCAA kept getting its ass kicked in court too. Uh, and so finally, really by at, at, with a bayonet in the back, they came to the table and said, okay, well, we'll have NIL. Um, so they were reluctant to come into this. They were late to come into it. And now, yes, they want guardrails, the term, um, you know, on, on, on everything. And I'm okay with some guardrails. I, I don't think that, that, you know, I, I don't think having it where a player is at three different schools in three different years is necessarily good. You know, I yeah. think there should be some educational component here still. And it's kind of hard to have that when you're transferring every single year. So they've got to figure out the transfer piece. They've got to decide whether NIL is pay for play or whether it is reward for established performance or, or exactly what it's going to be. And the NCAA that the, the the surest sign that they um, don't really have any grasp on this themselves, they're begging Congress to to help them, save them, basically, and that's that's risky because a Congress a how much does Congress know? B how much do they care? C how quickly do they ever act on anything? Yes, Congress is like a uh, it's like a very slow moving ship uh, that but everyone's facing the other way and telling the captain where to go. But there is no captain. That's I don't know. I, that's my <laughs> metaphor of the day. It's a pretty good uh, metaphor. You, you live down in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, uh, University of Kentucky, Louisville. These are two historically very good basketball schools. But since NIL started, they haven't really been a part of the national picture is it because since they've been playing their paying their players forever that now they're at a disadvantage <laughs> or uh, where's Kentucky and, and Louisville in this whole NIL thing is it is it because the state is not a state that has a ton of money in it or that split or you just what, what's going on because Kentucky forever was you know a, a final four team you know consistently yeah. and I, I just haven't seen seen them recently yeah well you said it not me about them forever paying their players I, I'm, I'm not going to quibble with that but um so no hey they were a little bit slow to the party um you know i think whether that's the dyed in the wool blue bloods like we don't have to do that to get players or whatever but now look i mean oscar shibway the center for kentucky 
He made like two and a half million dollars reportedly last year. So, I mean, NIL is here. It's happening. Uh, they, they signed Shaden Sharp, who got a Porsche uh, um, agreement, and then he never played. He just he, he was around for a semester and then said, I'm, I'm going to go pro. So, you know, they, it's been – I'm not sure they, they've executed terribly well, but there is enthusiasm and commitment to doing it. And while, no, it is not a rich state, basketball is the pro sport here. People will spend money to support their basketball program. Sean Calipari is probably the highest paid coach in America because that's the demand. Um, now, he's underperformed. That's the, the biggest problem isn't really being slowed in. It's just John Calipari has wasted talent. And Louisville has caught itself in a scandal spin cycle and has now been through multiple coaches and can't get out of its own way. And has fallen down so far that you can't even find them. I mean, they were they were the worst power program in the country this last year. They were four and twenty-eight. So they've got a big hole to dig out of. And Kentucky has to decide whether John Calipari is worth this massive salary because he's underperforming. But rest assured, the best players at those schools are going to get NIL deals and they're going to be good. For about a decade, maybe I don't know how long Calipari's been at Kentucky, but it just felt like a decade, 15 years. It just seemed like they would go and get basically another Fab Five every year. It was like all these freshmen coming in that were top, top recruits. Somehow Calipari got them there and they'd make a run. And maybe because they were young, they'd get to the final four, but not win. But then next year, it'd be, it'd be a lot of one and dones in there. And now they, those guys are in the NBA. The next year, they, here come more guys and they'd make another run. You know, they were raw. They were they were freshmen. They were extremely athletic. They were long, uh, but they were sort of inexperienced. And so when they play like a butler, which was at the time, you know, a bunch of four year seniors that have been working together uh, for all that time with a great coach. They, it, it was uh, the talents didn't matter versus like the team aspect of it. But then again, as you said, we just haven't seen Kentucky do that like that. That cycle they had has just sort of stopped, it seems like, in the last, you know, five or six years. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think they kind of figured out one and done only gets you so far. And at Kentucky, look, the goal is to win it all. It's not to come close. It's not to make the Sweet 16. It's to win it all. And so they did in 2012 with Anthony Davis and Michael K. Gilchrist and some other some, some freshmen. They also had a couple of, of veterans who stuck around and helped that team. The two teams that should have won national titles just based on talent, but were too young and too inexperienced. 2010 with John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins and Eric Bledsoe. 2015 with Carl Towns, Devin Booker, et cetera, et cetera. They lost to, that team lost to a veteran Wisconsin team. I believe Devin Booker was like the sixth man, by the way. He wasn't even a starter yeah. on that. So. Yeah, he couldn't get on the floor. And I mean, they were playing the Harrison Twins who were not as good. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, but so, yeah, they lost to a veteran Wisconsin team in 15. They lost to a veteran West Virginia team in 2010. And eventually it just kind of became clear that, frankly, the best way to win in college basketball is get old, stale. That's what all the coaches say. So you, you get veterans, you whether it's the portal, whether it's through your own homegrown recruiting, and you put a more experienced team on the floor against a more talented but fragile, maybe mercurial sort of team, and you end up winning so Kentucky finally started trying to get old a couple of years ago uh, but they haven't still been able to get it right like for the most part their freshmen haven't been quite as good as those groups 
the last few years. So now this next year, they've got the best freshman class in the country coming in. We'll see if they have any veterans to go with them, or are they going back into the old one and done spin cycle here? Don't know, but there's there's a lot of pressure on John Calipari right now. There there are people really unhappy with him in the state. Does it feel like the NIL is doing is doing different things to different sports? Where in college basketball, giving a whole bunch of money to freshmen, so you have all these talented freshmen with no college basketball experience playing together for the first time, is less effective than giving maybe some to a freshman or two, and then giving some to other players that are juniors and seniors, but they're just not good enough to go to the NBA yet. They don't have that like raw talent. They don't have that huge upside and molding a team that way, rather than just giving the money to a bunch of freshmen or football, you have so many players. There's just no way you can give a ton of money to freshmen because there's so much development in football. You just don't know how a 17 year old is going to be in two or three years. Plus there's a three-year rule in, in football compared to basketball is only one year where it's, it's becoming more and more advantageous for the boosters and the NIL people to give money to the veterans rather than to the freshmen, which it seems like it's a very, very risky endeavor. I mean, the Florida freshman, Jaden Rashada, supposedly a $13 million contract to go to Florida, goes there, doesn't get the money, leaves, right? But And, 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 and also, Jaden Rashada, no one has any idea how good he's going to be. No clue, right. but someone that's right. played two or three years – you have so much more in the resume and the risk there for the people handing out those those very important dollars is much smaller when you go after those those veteran players. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, absolutely. I mean, football, I mean, you know, it's it's a development game. It's a growth and maturation game. There, there's not a lot of true freshmen that are ready to step in and be millionaire saviors that's for sure mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know it, it it takes a while caleb williams uh, caleb williams yeah. I, i've known him since eighth grade and i and, and i probably i don't know if it was eighth grade but i think it's about ninth grade i'm like this kid is going yeah. to change a college football program or add on to the excellence if he goes to a, a national championship level school he is one of those guys that but, but but those guys are very, very rare. Those guys are very yeah. few. Yeah, there's not a lot of Caleb Williams out there. That's for sure, you know. And so I do think that um, it's just you're, you're, you're much more prudent to, I, I th- you know, I think this is the way Alabama generally has done it is, you know, but you, you have to prove you're good enough to be a starter. When you prove you're a starter and you start to produce, guess what? You're going to get a lot. Okay. Now, maybe they're getting a lot up front, too. I don't know. But but that's at least been Nick Saban's stated philosophy. And that's one of the reasons he took issue with Texas A&M, which allegedly was putting up a lot of money up front for recruits. Uh, and boy, that, that they sure weren't ready as freshmen last year to change the world. So I just think you are, you're so much better doing it that way in um, in football. And then in basketball, yeah, like you said, I mean, you, you can – you can kind of pick and choose what you need, where you need to get it. Like, you know, Creighton goes and gets Baylor Shireman and brings him in. And while he didn't exactly like the world on fire, he was an important part of an elite eight team. And he's got an established reputation. He can make some NIL money. Certainly. I'm sure that was part of it. Ryan Colt came, came, came from us, came from a smaller school. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Sort of moved, up, moved up the chain, but then Creighton yeah. just loses their point guard. Right, or he's in, in the portal. So there's like yeah. there's these like steps 
<laughs> right? It feels like, you know, and if you're at the highest step, you go down to the step just below you, steal their best players, but then the people at that, they're going below and everyone just sort of works. The cream does rise to the top. And and the best thing for the players is some players are are, are making money off of the, you know, the whole system of college sports and obviously something that they weren't making or, or few guys, few, few athletes were, were making in the past illegally. Uh, yeah. But now at least the, the athletes are getting uh, compensated for the work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, it's always, well, I'm not sure it's all above board, but a lot more of it is above board and in, in the public than it used to be. And yeah, I'm fine with that because I was just, the, my whole thing is just stop lying to us, you know, stop telling us that, when you go to the SEC school and there's 19 Dodge Chargers in the parking lot, that that's all just because, you know, they worked hard at their summer jobs. We know that's not the case. So let's, you know, let's at least just tell us what's going on, understand it, and then decide what we want the rules to be. Talk to you about Iowa and Iowa State football, two schools that are interesting. You know, Matt Campbell's now been at Iowa State for about eight years. He's a younger coach. Kirk Ferentz has been at Iowa uh, since the, you know, the, the roaring twenties, I feel like he's been there for a course ever. I think 1999, my junior year, uh, was, was Kirk's first year. They were one in 10, I think that year, uh, talk about these two programs and these two head coaches that are leading, leading them and where they are in their careers as coaches. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I, <clears throat> I think both of them are a little bit of a crossroads, uh, you know, they've both done phenomenal work. I mean, the body of work is fantastic. For Matt Campbell to be a consistent winner at Iowa State, you know, he's kind of the first one to have won over five, six, seven years in a row and uh, to be competitive in a big-time league at a time when Oklahoma and Texas are in it. Uh, you know, that that speaks volumes. But step back last year, four and eight, and how do you – kind of regain that momentum and go forward. And then you have to decide is, you know, is, this, is the formula that we've been working with good enough or do we need to tweak it and find ways to, to make it better? Um, and I think at Iowa, it's the same thing. You have to look, this formula has worked for a long time since the roaring twenties, as you said, uh, it's, it's the same formula. It's defense, it's special teams, it's field position. It's a little bit of offense occasionally. Um, and then last year, the offense absolutely falls apart. And somehow, like, the fact that that team had a winning record, give Phil Parker all the money, all the money, because uh, that, that team was so atrocious offensively uh, to win those games was incredible. So, you know, it's worth And, and by the time. way, and, and, and LeVar Woods, LeVar Woods, our special teams coordinator, he was my yeah, uh, yeah. tailback in the Iowa Shrine game in high school. <laughs> Uh, and I and I I hope that Lavar at some point gets his shot. He played six or eight years in the NFL. Went back to Iowa. He's a guy's from Iowa. I I think that he would be a great coach uh, to replace Kirk Ferentz at some point. Mm. Um, so I want to give make sure give him credit because yeah, your defense. Phil Parker's done a phenomenal job there. Um, yeah. I was both teams are interesting because over the the sort of the Matt Campbell era. And the uh, uh, um, Kirk Ferentz there, at least recently, 
the defenses have been the ones that have really uh, won them a lot of football games, kept them in a lot of football games. Two very good defense. Iowa State, I believe, was the number one defense in the league and the number 10 offense in the league of 10 teams. And and, and Iowa was pretty much the same. They were probably top yeah. two or three in defense and I'm sure last in offense in the Big Ten. The difference for me, what's interesting, is the NFL – each coordinator, you're 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 on the same team, but if you if if the defense is really good and the offense isn't very good, they fire the offensive coordinator at the end of the year. <laughs> but in college sports, it's different. There's this like we're all in this together, and so uh, uh, one side of the ball can be much worse than the other side of the ball. But since they went eight and four or nine and three or whatever they were at Iowa last year, everyone keeps their job. Um, Iowa State made big changes to their offense. They changed out almost everybody. Uh, they, they they kept a coach that became their offensive coordinator. They brought in a new offensive line coach. They brought in some other coaches. Iowa did not. Do you see much of the same over there in Iowa City of a really good defense and this offense that just does enough to maybe the special teams or defense wins them games in the fourth quarter or maybe make, make a play here and there? I mean, how do you, do you see anything different going all over there in Iowa City on the offensive side of the football? I mean, I, I, I will say I I think it played a factor in keeping a job when the last name of the offense coordinator is the same as the last name of the head coach. So uh, now that it's interesting with the contract revision that Brian Ferentz got, there's there's he, he has to reach some tangible goals in terms of uh, points per game and uh, and victories. And if those don't happen, they will have the latitude to make a change there, finally. Uh, you know, I we'll see what they put on the field and see how how different it actually looks. I mean, they, they are bringing in, I think, a pretty talented quarterback, uh, Cade McCormick, Cade, I'm sorry, what's the last? McNamara from, um, from Michigan. Um, so that should help them at that position. Will they philosophically change enough where, you know, they, they add wrinkles, they – you know, do different things in terms of play calling to actually just break the status quo. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I think that when it gets when it gets down to it in close games, Kirk Ferentz is going to rely on punting, play, punting them deep and playing defense, and we'll yeah. see what happens otherwise. I feel like Iowa gets more safeties uh, defensively <laughs> in college football than than anyone else. Uh, talking about. The USC UCLA, all right, two two long uh, traditional Pac-12 schools. I mean, I grew up watching the Rose Bowl, and it was the Big Ten and the Pac Pac-10, right, or Pac-12 yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. then it was almost every year it was USC or UCLA, maybe a Washington or a Stanford was thrown there occasionally. But these are two sort of blue blood Pac-12 schools now moving to the Big Ten. So somehow. LA schools are in the same conference as Pennsylvania schools. All right. How talk to you about that, right? Cause it's not just football and basketball. It is these other sports that traditionally was a, a bus ride or a short flight. And now they're literally flying across the country. And these are student athletes. Talk to me about how those schools are going to navigate. Uh, I know the big 10 uh, are, um, I, I can't remember what the exact wording was uh, during the press release, but they of course start off that the big 10 fits USC's and UCLA's academic uh, 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 sort of uh, philosophies and athletic philosophies. 
Uh, but talk to me what's going to be like being a student athlete at those schools playing in conferences uh, uh, that basically, you know, across the country, a, a four or even five hour flight away. Yeah, I mean, I hate it. I think it's I think it's bad for the athletes, first and foremost. It's bad for tradition. It's bad for a national uh, sense of college athletics, of, of having every part of the country matter um, in terms of its own regional interests, uh, then being able to, to um, migrate, basically, and, and captivate everybody. I mean, I, I, you grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Colorado. And yeah, there's not much better than on January 1st, turning on that TV and seeing how beautiful Pasadena is on the Rose Bowl, you know, and it, it's, you're cold and the, the sun isn't out and you look at that and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. But that was the Pac-12 and it was the West Coast. And now you're going to try to take those schools and have them in the same league with teams from Champaign, Illinois and Madison, Wisconsin and State College, Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Maryland. I mean... It's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. It, it, and to but by the point, way, I don't, I don't know how uh, uh, flight wise, how you're going to get from Los Angeles to Champaign, Illinois, uh, <laughs> or to West Lafayette, right? right? I mean, if you're from, you know, is it flying to Chicago and then some flight down? But there's only so many flights from LA to Chicago, you know, every day. And and I'm just, I have from a logistics standpoint no yeah. idea how these kids are going to get to these places and not miss in. You know, and there's a flight delay. It's the winter time in the Midwest. Uh, we all know O'Hare is a disaster uh, in the winter time. How is that going to happen for, again, student athletes? I just don't find that enjoyable to, to go to those two schools to have to play in a conference uh, on the other side of the globe. Right. I, I think it'll end up hurting them more than it'll help them. And yeah, like, Unless the private plane usage is off the charts and like unprecedented, then you are absolutely going to be disadvantaged. Even with it, you're still going to be disadvantaging your, your athletes. But if you, you've got the private jet charter flight, everything, you got a charter flight, your softball team and Track, your cross country, yeah, all of it. And they're, you know, they're working on various things. And I think, you know, there's been, there will be increased commitments towards charter flights, but still, it, you're not going to cover everything. They're, they're working on some of these stratagems where basically, all right, we're just going to bring six volleyball teams to Denver for a weekend from the Big Ten and from the, from the West Coast, and we'll just have them play each other, that sort of thing, to try to minimize travel and minimize class misses. Look, unless the TV, unless Fox, which has the, the most of the Big Ten stuff – plays ball with this here, which we know what Fox wants. Like on, on Thursday night, they want Purdue to play USC in basketball, okay? And Wednesday, they want Michigan to play UCLA. Guess what? You're traveling a long way. You're coming in the day before. If your game's on a Wednesday, you're coming in Tuesday, so you're not going to school Tuesday on the West Coast. You're not going to school Wednesday on the West Coast. You're flying back after the game. You're going to leave Ann Arbor slash Detroit at – 10, 11, midnight, fly three hours back the other way. Then you're supposed to go to class the next day. So you're missing three days for one day. Uh, it's it's not going to be tenable, I don't think. And they can say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. I want to see it. And I will say this, too. Like, everybody, certainly I am, we're going to be all over UCLA because they're a public school. We can get records for exactly what they're doing, for how they're traveling and all that stuff. Yeah. USC, you're lucky. You're a private school. You can kind of deflect that, but – 
they will be under the microscope. How are you treating your athletes when you're trying to pull this off? Well, and UCLA is an interesting school because as you look around all the major sports programs in the country, uh, you know, Iowa State, I don't know exactly how many sports we have. I think, I think it's something like 19 um, more girls sports, <coughs> women's sports than, than men's sports. Um, but UCLA has like 33. It's one of those schools, like probably Texas is another one, but there's certain schools that have tons and tons of non-revenue generating sports, Olympic sports. And UCLA, I feel like is probably the, the, the cream, creme de la creme of that type of philosophy. It's Los Angeles. There's Stanford, baby. Stanford. Stanford, you guys, you you have a lot uh, uh, as well. Um, that's what's interesting. It's not like there's just a few sports who are flying across the country. It's 33 sports who are now um, a, a part of this. Um, yeah. sw switching switching uh, sides a little bit here. You're a journalist, all right? That, that means a lot of things to a lot of people, all right? Journalism. Um, Talk to me about the like blurred line between covering a story or covering a game and having your own opinion in there, right? Like how do you cover a college basketball game of covering what happened, but then not Pat Forty's opinion of why the coach did this and why this happened and why uh, th this team won or lost or, uh, and, and, and uh, as, as a real journalist that you are, occasionally you're in a courtroom covering <laughs> things that occur in a courtroom. Uh, yeah. How do you, how do you, um, when you're writing, when you're podcasting, any of these things, uh, uh, try to figure out how you just cover something versus give your opinion on what happened? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I am from the old school and I came up through newspapers. I worked newspaper in Louisville over 17 years and then I went to ESPN, Yahoo, and now Sports Illustrated. I was a columnist by age 27, not a beat writer. I was a columnist. My job was to give my opinion largely on things. Um, as my, as my boss used to say, what are you inflicting your opinion? What, you, what opinion are you inflicting on the masses today? Uh, and was it, so, was it always, was it always 40 yard dash and uh, your, your two forties? What was the other uh, 40 minutes uh, for, for basketball? 40 minutes. Um, yeah. That started, I think, in 2004 when I got to ESPN. Um, so I would get like a big college football notebook when I was at the newspaper, too. And so that carried over. It just kind of got a catchier name. Um, but so, I mean, I've always kind of been in the opinion business. And it's interesting how many, how few people are still in the opinion business from a media standpoint. There's a lot of places that don't want opinion. I mean, ESPN.com has eradicated opinion from the website. They don't, they don't want anyone other than clips of Stephen A. Smith yelling at you from the morning <laughs> shows. That, that's the only opinions they want. So some places don't want it. Some places still do want it. I'm glad Sports Illustrated is one of those places. Um, but you, to your point, there, there's different tones and different voices for different stories, right? 40-yard dash, 40 minutes is going to be a lot of opinion. Um Covering a news story, like say you're going into a courtroom or whatever, and boy, I, I, I've been into more courtrooms than I ever thought I would covering college sports, but yeah, but here we are. Uh, it's it's different, you know. Uh, it's going to be a lot more fact based, and uh, you know, a, it, you do investigative work. There's no room for opinions when you're doing investigative stuff. 
So, you know, we did when the when the college basketball scandal we thought was going to be a scandal really didn't turn out to be much. But when that broke, we did a lot of the investigative stuff on that when I was at Yahoo. And um, you were definitely writing that with a different view and tone and an eye towards what you were supposed to be doing. So it is a blurred line. It's different. I mean, you know, they it all goes back to when you would pick up the Des Moines Register or whatever paper. And like, here's the news stories. And then over here on the left-hand side is the sports column of somebody, you know, spouting off about whatever's wrong with Iowa State or Iowa or what have you. And um, that's kind of the way I came up. And we'll see if there's still any room for that in the next 10 years or so. Sports Illustrated. I grew up rural Iowa. Sports Illustrated came every Thursday to my mailbox and my gravel road. I could not wait to come home from school get it out of the mailbox, see what was on the cover. Many times, if it was a cover I really liked, we'd end up cutting the cover off and probably putting it on the wall. And I think, I believe my brother and I think I did the same thing. We had a wall of our favorite covers. So Michael Jordan or whoever it was. Um, I actually had a uh, uh, um, uh, an opinion uh, I can't remember what it was. You know, you it's like a letter to the editor yeah. uh, that made Sports Illustrated when I was like a freshman in high school or something <laughs> like that. Really? Uh, they did the NFL preview issue, and it, they were talking about how the left tackle is the most important player on the field. And I wrote in, what about that quarterback guy who throws those <laughs> pass things? Like, yeah, everyone knows <laughs> that quarterback's the most important. And it, and it actually uh, made it. One of my goals uh, as a kid growing up was to be from a sports perspective was to be one of those faces in the crowd. Oh, yeah. I always want to, you know, I was, mm -hmm. I was all state in two or three things, uh, you know, and we won a state championship. Th those rare athletes that made the faces in the crowd, there is these certain elements to sports illustrated. They're like near and dear to my heart. You now work for them. Sports illustrated is vastly different than it was during the 90s. Uh, I, I don't, it was the 90s, maybe the heyday. I mean, it was Sports Illustrated, and then it was sort of all the rest, sporting news and these other things that really couldn't even hold water to what Sports Illustrated was. Where is Sports Illustrated now? You know, I know Albert Breer. He, he does the NFL uh, for SI. Um, and it's, it's see, it feels like because of everything's digital and you do still sell magazines, but not nearly as much as, as, as you used to. Where's Sports Illustrated now compared to what it was 20 years ago? Yeah, well, it's funny. I was the same kid, okay? Like, I was, I'm a little older than you are, so it was late 70s, early 80s. I was out running out to the mailbox to get it, and I just... Yeah, I mean, I, whatever I was doing stopped when I got the magazine, and I would. I'd look at it, and I would flip through every single page, wouldn't read anything, just kind of mentally catalog. All right, I'm going to read that, going to read that, going to read that. And then look at the pictures because the photographs were always phenomenal. And then go back and then devour it from a reading standpoint. So I was the same way. And I kept every issue. Um, to be working for him is really cool still. It's it's awesome. But it, it is, it's totally different. It's just a different landscape. You know, I mean, the print product is is just not the same. It doesn't have the same niche in American culture that it once did whether it's newspapers, whether it's magazines, whatever. Uh, we figured out how to put things online. We figured out how to access them much more easily, how to you know streamline production costs, all those sorts of things. So uh, we're much more, we are more online than we are print, where we now publish uh, once a month. Um, 
there's still a premium put on good writing and good reporting. And I think, you know, whether if you pick up the magazine, you'll see a lot of good writing. If you check our daily cover stories online, there's a lot of good writing. We don't have as big a staff. Nobody does. Um, so that's definitely been a change. And there's just much more of a, there's a quick, more of a quick turn mentality, not just at SI, but everywhere. And that is a little bit counter to what SI always was, you know, where it's the, the thoughtful, longer, bigger pieces that yeah. come out once a week or, you know, and this writer's going to be in the first issue of the month, then you're not going to see him again for three more issues. And then he'll be in the next issue, you know, after that or whatever. Uh, nowadays, look, they want us, they want us to have a presence online multiple times a week. And so that's the way it is. And again, I, I'm fine with that. Cause I was, I was a newspaper guy. That's the way we worked all the time. So it's different. Um, it's still a good publication. No doubt about it. I love working there. Uh, it would be great. You know, in my mind, if we could go back and make it, 1983 and and have that same magazine coming out once a week but it's not 1983. i remember talking to greg bishop uh, a few years ago um who i believe still writes for sports yes. Illustrated. Yes, he does. Um, and it was before the super bowl and he had spent two or even three weeks writing researching preparing because he had the uh cover article uh, uh for sports Illustrated for the super bowl and you just don't see that type of coverage anymore where um, there's real in-depth and there's interviews and there's uh, there's like a magical um, aspect to this like article. It's, it was it was a short book. You know, it was a good chapter in a book that you, you just read. Uh, and now everything is so much quicker. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like as as. Those of us who intake articles now, we, you get about 10 minutes, maybe. A lot of people, it's like the first three paragraphs and there's a, they just the ADD just sort of moves on uh, to the next. I wish we went back, just like I wish we went back. I, I'm old school too. I wish we I'd go back um, and you, know, you, you open up a newspaper and there might be one article that, that you're really looking at, but then there's these other ones that you um you see and next thing you know you're you're in a complete something completely different and it's like a smorgasbord of of information and now it just doesn't feel the same whether it's on espn.com or really any website it's just it's not the same thing uh as those articles in in newspapers or or in sports illustrated how it was back in the day and the actual physical copy of what we were reading yeah no i mean it's changed and not necessarily for the better that is where uh, journalism is. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned Greg Bishop, who does still write for us and does a great job. And he he put so much into that Super Bowl cover um, and also into like he, he, a lot of times he's had, he had the final four, like Big Heat, and he will interview like 23 people. It's like, Greg, at some point you have to stop interviewing. He'll <laughs> start writing. <laughs> but he's just, that's the way he's wired. I need more information, more, 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 you know, and that, that makes for good stories. It makes for great stories. And, uh, you know, the, the 23rd person might spark something that completely changes the article because now there's this new piece of information. And yes. that's usually where the magic happens. Right. right? That's the thing. Yeah. And, and the editors and the people who are profiting the most off of, all these you know, you know, blogs or whatever it might be, 
they just don't have they don't want to have the time for that because they know every single minute counts every hour counts and 23 interviews takes up days and days and days and they want that content created now and yeah. but the, but the good as you know the good content takes time and um um so yeah just such, such a different landscape now in in the way sports writing sports reporting is than it used to be um you've covered a lot of sports you don't just do basketball and football uh you do swimming uh you do of course the uh horse racing big in louisville um there's an iowa family uh the albaugh family who's big into horse racing you got the derby coming up uh at some point here not too far off right is it, it is almost this time of year is it like may when the derby first first saturday in may every year all right so uh i believe the all balls here had a couple horses in in the running this year um talking about the covering the kentucky derby living in kentucky and then of course this all ball family from iowa who randomly seems like nearly every year has a horse in the derby or or a chance to make the derby yeah, uh, Angel of Empire is their big horse for this year's Derby. So, yeah, they're, they're a definite presence and, and basically an annual presence uh, in the Derby. And I love covering it. It's, you know, it's so different than what we spent, what I spend most of my time doing. First of all, it's a home game, so I don't have to leave. It's in Louisville. And there's just so much tradition, folklore, Americana, whatever, culture associated with the Derby that it is it's an event. It's an American event, the cultural event that there's, you know, the masters, I guess, has some similarities to it, maybe the Indy 500, but this was, this is the 149th Kentucky Derby. The first one was run 10 years after the civil war ended. I mean, it's been around forever and you go to, it's at the same track in the same place. So you feel the history when you're there and they have the names of every winner on the, on the grandstand walls and you go, you know, 1911, 1894 you know i mean it, so there's a really cool feel to that and it's just um you know the animals are spectacular i don't you know, there's there's some real qualms about injuries and that sort of thing and and drugs that are administered to, to racehorses but the people are fascinating you know i spend most of my time covering college sports and i love it and college athletes are great you know young people there that are super ambitious and uh have worked hard to get where they are but they haven't necessarily lived a lot of life. You go to the barn area of a horse track, those people have lived a lot of life, a lot of it hard for some people, you know? I mean, there's characters back there, survivors, people who have had everything and lost everything. And the other way around, people that came from nothing and now have everything. You get Arab sheiks and Irish billionaires, and you also get people that muck the stalls and walk around with horse crap on their boots, you know I mean? So it's, it's just this great melding of people and stories and, and it all comes down to a two minute race. I mean, like a football game, three and a half hours, basketball game, two hours. This is two minutes. I mean, talk about pressure. You must perform in those two minutes. You screw up one thing. Your Kentucky dream is gone and horses get to run in at one time. You don't get a second chance. So there's just a lot, a lot that goes into it. So it's an incredibly emotional, palpable event. You, you cover all these sports. Is the Derby for you like the most interesting or the one you enjoy the most? And uh, sort of a second question to that, what is the oddest event you've covered? Uh, like place, event itself, what happened at the event? Uh, give me a story of, of some of the odd things you've covered over the years. 
Yeah. Um, boy, I mean, you know, you go to the Olympics and you're going to cover crazy stuff. And I've done nine Olympics, I guess. Um, swimming is near and dear to my heart. My kids all swim, obviously. And I know a lot about that. I know the people involved better than I know in any other sport. So that's that's 1A. Uh, but then you get to go, like, last we were in Tokyo, three, 2021, I ended up covering a, a field hockey match with India against Argentina. And that was fascinating because it's a totally different sport. But in India, field hockey is huge. And their women had never done anything, and they had made the semifinals. So that's I went there to cover that. Uh, covered table tennis in China, which is like covering the FEC, all right? I mean, in terms of passion, intensity, that's the national sport for a lot of people. And, you know, they I remember hearing stories of, like, how do you, how do you get picked to be – to go on this path to be an elite table tennis player in China? Well, like – Start age three, they bounce balls to you. Can you catch the balls? Well, you've got some hand-eye coordination. Guess what? You're going to table tennis school at like age five or six or whatever, you know. Uh, so stuff like that. I mean, you go to the Olympics and it's just so different. You're, you're exposed to so many things that you just don't see normally and, and the way people go about things. That That's uh, always a highlight for me, for sure. Well, I've taken up enough of your time today, Pat. I appreciate it. Where is your next event, and uh, uh, what? We, yeah, what will we? What will you be covering next? Um, you know, I'm still kind of nibbling at some college stories uh, for the next couple of weeks, but the Derby is coming. Kentucky Derby is May sixth, and uh, we'll be writing about that. That starting the beginning of May, and uh, after that, who knows? We'll see where the news takes me. Being that you're a journalist, can you gamble uh, oh, on the next Derby? It's actually expected and almost demanded of you. There is a betting window in the press box, okay? So, like, it, it, there is no separation of church and state when it comes to the Kentucky Derby or to horse racing. So. Do you have your eyes on uh, any horse in particular? Well, the, the favorite is Forte. Um, I'm claiming him actually as a distant relative, Forty Forte. It's close enough. Um, he's been really good, but we'll see if he's fast and just has enough natural speed. Uh, it. This, I think, could shape up to be a wide-open one. I'm not sure we're going to get an 80-to-1 winner like we did last year with Rich Strike, but I think we could have some surprises. Forte is Pat Forty's pick this year. Well, Pat, thanks for coming on. The Sage Rosenfeld's experience, I hope it was a good experience for you. Uh, and thanks for uh, talking to uh, all the Iowans out there who are listening to the Iowa Everywhere Network. Uh, have a great day. My pleasure, Sage. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming on. Iowa everywhere.